Well, 13 years ago today, actually, uh, I took Kelly on our very first date. Uh, it was a cold and rainy Chicago evening, uh, but it was a long time in coming. Uh, because Kelly, just a few months earlier, she had told all of her friends, and I quote, I will never date Nathan. Can you believe my sweet wife said that about me? <laughs> but I guess you know who won that argument, right? Uh, I, I'm just, I guess, just sort of that good. Um, I mean, I, I, was, I was convinced that it was going to happen. In fact, I had, I had told my best friend about a month earlier uh, that I was going to marry her uh, before, we, before we started dating. And I don't know if I just got lucky with saying that or if I just maybe said that back then about all the girls that I was, you know, I don't think that was it. I don't think that was it. Um, or just, you know, it just happened that way. And I had this, this sense of confidence. I remember in those wooing months, right, uh, when trying to sort of, you know, convince her also to be interested in me, that I would, I would do anything to be near her. I mean, I would, I would strategically put myself in whatever place that the magic could possibly happen. I mean, looking back, it was probably a little bit creepy. Um, but it was effective, right? Because eventually we went out and we started dating. And those early months, I mean, is there anything in the world quite like young romance? That's disgusting, isn't it? I mean, it really is, right? This, this strange dual narcissism where you're just so self-focused. But I mean, we would, have, we would do anything to be near each other. Anything. Any, anything just for a moment of close. I mean, do you remember those days, right? When, when even the simplest brush of skin against skin is, is almost intoxicating. Or the first time we held hands or our first kiss. I mean, I once drove nonstop, except for gas, from Kansas City to Florida. Nonstop, by myself, just to be with her. We just, we couldn't, we couldn't get enough and, and always wanting to be, be close. And, and, you know, when we got married, that's a, that's a promise of, of lifelong togetherness, of, of nearness, of closeness. I mean, now, of course, we practically have to schedule an appointment just to have a meaningful conversation. Uh, but you, you get the idea, right? We, we remember those days, and it's such a remarkable thing, this intense desire, this exhilarating, uh, inexhaustible need to be near another human. It's, it's weird, isn't it? We're created like this. And there's one thing that I just find absolutely unimaginable, but it's that the God of the universe feels that way about us. Wooing and pursuing, even when we sometimes just frankly want nothing to do with him, and yet he continues to persist. God will do anything to be near us. Now for a sermon on the Old Testament temple. Sounds exciting, doesn't it? Everybody's just sort of on, you heard that text and like the temple. I mean, actually, it just kind of sounds weird, doesn't it? I mean, this, this idea of, of the God of the universe, the God who made everything, somehow his glory, in some ways his very presence there among his people in some 
building? I mean, what business does the God who made the world have in a building on, on planet Earth? But it screams a loud message, this idea of a temple. Even back so many thousands of years ago there in the Old Testament, a loud message that God will do anything to be near us. I mean, like, like a young lover pursuing the, the woman of his dreams, God continues to woo, to long to be close to us. And we long for his nearness, don't we? I mean, we may not recognize it as that, uh, but I think deep down, we all, we all have this sort of this inner longing, and, and maybe that, that longing sort of shows up in those, those moments of, of incredible joy or beauty or pleasure or even pain. Or sometimes we feel the longing for, for God's presence when we're uh, discontent with the broken way that, that our world works, or the broken way that we continue to, to be here. We, we have this, this longing that, that feeling within us that, that swells up and almost wants to just cry out for, for more, for, for transcendence, for, for meaning or significance. We, we long for God's presence, even if we don't recognize it. And yet the first thing that comes to my mind when I think about God's presence, if God is so close... Why doesn't he feel close? If God longs so desperately to be near us, then why, why does he often feel so absent? Does anybody else struggle with that? I mean, as, I, as I think about this, and I, I'm, not, I'm not sure there is anything more frustrating, more discouraging in the Christian experience than the seeming distance of God in those dark moments. And we can talk about personal relationship with God till we're blue in the face. But how many personal relationships do you have with somebody that you cannot see, cannot hear, and cannot touch? It's hard, isn't it? And so King Solomon, also longing for God's presence, builds this temple, this place, Here's, here's a picture, I mean, just kind of a, a drawing of what that, that might have looked like so long ago. A place where the people could meet with God, and more importantly, a place where God could meet with his people. Now, at this point, okay, our, our story is, is moving really fast. If you've been with us, we're going through the whole Bible this year, Genesis to Revelation. Uh, there's been parts where we've slowed down a little bit, parts where we've sped up. This is one of the fast parts. And so last week we talked just briefly about King David, right? And now we're already on to David's son and the building of the temple. Next week is the destruction of Israel and the destruction of the temple. Okay, so hundreds of years and just a matter of weeks as we journey through this story together. But here we are now this morning in 1 Kings 8. Solomon builds God a temple, and they dedicate this physical building to their non-physical God. My brain just sort of floods with questions and, and all of that. Two in particular, two big questions that I have. What is God's presence? I mean, what is it really? Um, and how do we, now, so many years ago, later, no temple, how do we experience God's presence 
I mean, because sure, God will do anything to be near us. I think many of us would probably say, if you've been in church any length of time, you'd say, yeah, okay, I, I believe that. God, God will do anything to be near us. Yeah, what does that even look like? What is God's presence? I think this is where 1 Kings 8 can be so helpful for us. As we peer into this 3,000-year-old temple, we see a few things. We see that God's presence is guaranteed. It's, it's a promise that he makes to his people. We see that God's presence is mysterious. Solomon doesn't even get it in the way he, he's trying to understand what's going on. And that God's presence is real. That he's always listening, always watching. So God promises to be present with his people. So in, in this story, I mean, this is a big chapter, 1 Kings 8. We're only going to look at kind of a middle section, particularly uh, Solomon's prayer of dedication. But if you can imagine this incredible scene, the temple has just been built. Uh, and the people of Israel gather there in the city of Jerusalem for this seven-day feast of dedication. It's one of the things I love about the Old Testament. These people knew how to party. I mean, they knew how to celebrate. And so there's this seven-day feast of celebration. And King Solomon, their king, their leader, uh, opens up sort of this, this time of dedication with this lengthy prayer there as they witness the newness of this temple. And he begins by talking a lot about God's promise. Now, I've bolded uh, some of the words on the screen that really indicate this idea of promise. So I'm going to begin reading in 1 Kings 8, verse 23. So Solomon's praying. He says, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you have declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Okay, so God had promised to be with his people. And not just here in this moment, but certainly he promised King David that there would be a temple and that Solomon would be the one to build this temple. In the previous verses of this section, the word promise itself appears multiple times. And so the presence of a temple... But even more broadly, the presence of God himself among his people is a guarantee that God intends to keep with his people. It's a a promise that he made, that he continues to make. And yet at the same time, I I know what it feels like um, when he seems absent. We probably all all know that feeling to some extent. Um, It hurts. We were created for God's presence. We were created to be in relationship with him. If we were to look back at, at Genesis chapter 3, right back at the, the Garden of Eden and the fall of humanity, uh, we, we see that before all of, everything fell apart, um, that, that God, it says there was a time when we humans, God would walk in the garden uh, in the cool of the day with, with Adam and Eve. It's, it's incredible, isn't it? The intangible God making himself tangible to us. But, maybe you've heard the story, uh, we rebelled against God in that place, right? Uh, and everything broke, everything, everything fell apart. And as soon as we sinned, it says in, in Genesis 3, it says, the man and his wife 
hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. And we've been hiding from his presence ever since. I mean, we, we don't walk before him with all of our hearts as, as Solomon prayed in, in verse 23. We, we push God away and we try to fill that longing for transcendence, that, that need for something more with anything that we possibly can. And yet the longing continues and God keeps searching and wooing and pursuing And so if God doesn't feel near to you, I mean, certainly there's a whole host of of possibilities there, and we can't even begin to understand it hardly. Um, But if if God doesn't feel near to you, you've got to at least begin by asking the question, uh, am I the one who's hiding? Because that's, that's been the pattern since the very first humans walked on this earth. And so what feels like his absence may have more to do with me than with him. Because God promises to be near. I mean, the temple is just one fulfillment in a long list of promises of God's nearness for his people. It's it's a promise that the New Testament makes clear. It's for those of us who follow Jesus that God promises to be with us. And so if you don't feel his presence... I mean, that means either God is a liar or that you just don't feel his presence right now. But he is present because he promises to be present. God will do anything to be near us. Am I hiding? Well, second, and really I think this one is just unmistakable. Um, God's presence is mysterious. It's mysterious. Because God has been present with his people all throughout. As we've journeyed in this story, we've seen ways in which God is continually there. He's been present through through angels or visions, through a burning bush or through a pillar of fire. I mean, God is with his people. No doubt about it. And we saw it like, you know, with the the Ark of the Covenant, right? That mysterious thing or, or the tabernacle. All of these are sort of precursors to this temple, And now Solomon's built this place, this sort of house for God. And the first part of chapter 8, so if we go back a little bit before the prayer, before the verses that we've read, here's what it says in chapter 8, verse 10. When When the Ark of the Covenant came in to the temple, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. And then it says, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. It's kind of mysterious, right? I mean, just trying to think about this cloud and all of this. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's, it's mind-boggling. And so keep that image in mind as we, as we look back at his prayer. So that's, that is what they're witnessing as, as Solomon continues his prayer there. And, and I love verse 27. I think verse 27, honestly, of this whole chapter, verse 27 is my favorite. Um, because even Solomon in verse 27 realizes how mind-blowing this is. I mean, how ri- ridiculous it is to even begin to think that God might dwell here. And so here's what he prays in verse 27. He says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? 
Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. God, the whole world can't even hold you. And yet you want to make your home here with us? And and here's what's going on. I mean, on the one hand, we know that God is always present everywhere. Right? There's no place that God is not. And yet at the same time, his glory fills the temple. Does that mean that there was more of God there than other places? Or just more of the experience of God there than other? I mean, it's just... It's mysterious. And I, and I love, too, that Solomon, I mean, as, the, as the prayer continues, he, go, he goes on for a long time. We're not going to have time to look at all of it. Uh, but eight times in this prayer, he uses the phrase, listen or hear in your, heaven, your dwelling place. It's almost like Solomon keeps saying, okay, I know, yeah, temple, yes, but let's be honest, God hear from heaven. That is where you live. You are, I mean, he's saying, Solomon is saying, you are too big for this. You are too distant, too grand, too magnificent to even begin to imagine that this is your home. And yet, and yet here you are with us. He knows that God is right there with him. Are you following this? I mean, it's it's kind of a paradox, right? Uh, Theologians Sometimes talk about this with two big words. Theologians like big words, I guess. Uh, transcendence and eminence. So transcendent, that's a little bit more common. We use that one a little bit. That, that just really means completely other. Uh, it means nothing in the world quite, quite like it, different, out of, out of our reach. That's kind of the idea of transcendent. Eminent is the opposite. Uh, eminent means close or near or relatable. And the God that is revealed to us in this book is both transcendent and eminent. It's quite a paradox, isn't it? And we see it with the, with the temple. I mean, there's no wonder that you and I, we struggle to understand and experience the presence of God. Even Solomon, the wisest person who ever lived, even he couldn't wrap his mind around this. Relationship with God is unlike any other relationship in the world. There's just nothing else like it. And so if if God feels distant to you, again, there could be a, a variety of things, but we've got to at least ask ourselves, when we feel those moments, do I allow for enough mystery in my in my understanding of his presence? I think that's really important because sometimes Sometimes we have certain expectations, right? Uh, we place our expectations of God. This is what it must be like to be with God or to be in God's presence or to feel his presence or whatever. Uh, but the reality is, I mean, God rarely fits into our expectations, right? And so it may feel different than it did when you first became a believer or, or different than, than summer camp or when you were in college or, or whatever experiences you've had. It may feel very different. But that doesn't mean that God has left you. God will do anything to be near us. Do you allow room for enough mystery in that? Well, Solomon's prayer over the the temple uh, continues there. In that moment, there's there's that third thing um, that we see about God's presence. That God's presence uh, is real. 
And I don't want to minimize the mystery because in some ways these, are, these almost feel contradictory in themselves. It's mysterious, but yet it's real. It's, it's palpable uh, that, God, that God listens. I don't want to downplay the mystery, but I also don't want to understate the, the, the nearness, um, the realness of his nearness. God's presence is, is as real as anyone or anything because God listens. I love how this comes out in the prayer. Again, I bolded some of the key words on here. Uh, But picking up again from from verse 27, Solomon continues his prayer. He says, Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built yet. Okay, so Solomon's like, I know that that this can't contain you, and yet, God, please, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God. Listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people, Israel, when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. Do you notice a theme there, right? And if we were to look at the the whole prayer, 12 times Solomon uses this sort of request to God to to hear or listen to our cries, our pleas, and our prayers. 12 times in these verses. God's presence is real. He's listening. And not just listening. I mean, sometimes, honestly, when I picture God listening to my prayers, it's almost like I imagine him. I mean, I've been way too influenced by Farside. I picture him, you know, at the computer, you know, kind of overhearing my prayers, like, you know, barely sort of paying attention. I mean, that's just kind of me. Um, but the picture we get in Scripture is a God who's, he is leaning in, uh, listen, hanging on every word, just eager to hear everything that we might possibly want to tell him. God longs to be near us. And you know, I I can't help but wonder uh, if our longing for God's presence is sort of intensified by our cultural setting. Because I feel like more and more in the the world in which we live, um, we just don't experience a lot of presence with people. I mean, we have a lot of proximity, and we're all proximate to one another. We're all connected in a variety of ways, but we're rarely truly present. And for example, um, Kelly and I, this, this year, we went out for dinner on, on Valentine's Day. We usually try to avoid the chaos. Uh, it was the only time we'd get a babysitter, so we were there in the midst of, you know, the sea of people and waiting for our table. And I just remember, remember seeing another couple also waiting for the table, clearly, you know, to enjoy their romantic candlelit dinner and all those good things. Um, sitting there, um, playing on their cell phone the whole time while they waited, or checking email or, or whatever. They were proximate, but they weren't present. And I'm guilty, right? I mean, every one of us, right? Every, we've all done that. And in fact, recently I, I was sitting on David's bed, uh, putting him to bed, we had already read stories, and uh, he, like his dad, is a little bit of a talker. Um, and so he was just sort of jabbering on, and, you know, parents, right? You can only, you know, for so much, right? And so I'm sitting there, and without even really realizing, I didn't even, 
it wasn't even hardly a conscious choice, but before I do it, my phone was in my hand, and I was scrolling through my emails. Present, or approximate, I mean, there on his bed, but I wasn't really present. I wasn't listening. And David, I mean, he's five. He He doesn't know sarcasm yet. And so with all genuineness, he simply said to me, Dad, is that important? Busted. No, it's not. It's not even like in the realm of important things. Like important things are over here. And that's like way, way down there. And I had to apologize because I, there I was abs- as close as I could possibly be physically and yet so absent from him. And yet God in his nearness never does that to his people. His presence with his people, though mysterious, though so often it's seemingly hidden from us, it is real. He listens Just think about that for a moment. The God who made you, you individually, you, the the God who who calls you to himself, the God who, who longs to redeem you through his son, the God who has a plan for you now and forever, that God longs to listen. It's just remarkable. Blows me away when I stop and think about it. And so if, if God feels distant to you, and you've, you've at least got to ask yourself, am I present with him? I mean, he's listening, but are we, are we talking? I mean, just imagine if Solomon had built this incredible temple, the glory of the Lord filled the temple, uh, and then everyone sort of went on their merry way and never went to the temple, never experienced the temple, just kind of ignored it altogether. It would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? It's like, God is there. We've seen his glory enter this place. And yet, how often, I know for myself, we have that same access, even better. And yet, so often, I just sort of ignore it. God longs to be near us. And before you complain about not feeling his nearness, do we actually spend time with him? In his word and prayer and solitude, not just, not just occasionally, not just when life begins to fall apart. I mean, it's kind of easy to start doing it then, but regularly as a lifestyle, eager to hear from him, eager to be with him, just like any relationship, presence works both ways. And so God will do anything to be near us, yet I know how discouraging it can be when he feels absent. I mean, you know, when you, when you pray and it just feels like you're talking to yourself, you open this book and it seems like there's blank pages, it just feels empty. Or when you gather together with his people at church and you just feel alone. Some of you probably feel that way right now. And if you're honest with yourself, you would just like to cry out, God, where are you? Where did you go? What happened? So if that describes you, if you hear only one thing this morning, only one thing, it's that your God longs to be near you. Longs to be near you. And here's the hard part, because, I mean, God tends to draw near to us when we cry out to him, but we only tend to cry out to him when we're in those moments of desperation. And so maybe instead of just praying for God's nearness, Maybe we ought to pray a little more for desperation in our lives. Now we get glimmers of what God's presence might look like for us through this ancient story. Um, 
But seriously, I mean, it's still hard to connect with it. There's no more temple, right? It's gone. Um, and and it, we'll see it destroyed next week. And even if the temple was still there, what are, I mean, would we all go to Jerusalem when we wanted God for something? I mean, how do we experience God's presence? What does that look like for us now? Well, friends, we have something so much better than the temple. It's kind of hard to imagine, isn't it? I mean, what could be better than a physical place in which you could feel and see and experience the very glory of God, and yet we have something far better? And the temple was never meant to be sort of the end goal. The temple was a signpost to a greater reality, pointing us to something even grander. And we, I think, we have three things, in fact, that are better. Three, three ways to experience God's presence. We have God's son, we have God's people, and we have God's promise. So how do we experience God's near, nearness? First, we look for his son. But, I mean, how does that connect, right? I mean, if you've, if you've been here and you're like, you know, eventually at some point, in the ser- I always talk about Jesus. It doesn't matter what we're talking about. It's going to be about Jesus, right? And so how... You know, is this just an attempt to sort of cram Jesus into it? No, it's not, okay? Jesus calls himself the new temple. I mean, that, that, that's part of his, his job description. Did you know that about Jesus? In John 1, for example, um, John 1, 14, it kind of begins off as John tells his gospel story of Jesus. He says, the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. That, that word dwelt has, has ties to this Hebrew idea of, of tabernacle uh, or of temple, of, of God making his home with his people. And that we have seen his glory, John says, as of the only son from the father. And, and John chapter two, um, verse 19, Jesus really, I mean, truly, it's, very, it's clear. He claims to be the temple. He says, destroy this temple, meaning his body. And in three days, I will raise it up, meaning the resurrection. And so as a result, for example, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that that now we can worship anywhere because God is present everywhere through his son. There is no place where God is not. And that's always been the case. And yet this, this weird, strange, mysterious reality of the temple is now present through his son. And that we get to experience that through him. God's presence is alive in his son. Seek him, love him, know him, obey him, trust him, follow him. God will do anything to be near us. Coming in, in a cloud to the temple, coming from heaven, right? From a, in a cloud, to the, it's nothing as magnificent as it could be. God came to this earth in flesh. And he made his home with us. And he, he died for us so that we could be near to God. And he rose again so that we could be near to God forever. If you want to experience God's presence, you have got to get to know his son. But that's not all. I mean, that would be enough, right? But the New Testament keeps building these ideas. That this, this temple it just continues on uh, with, with all this, this beauty and joy. Uh, we also experience the presence of God uh, when we gather with his people. Uh, so the Apostle Paul in the New Testament really builds on this, this metaphor uh, of, of the temple. He says in 1 Corinthians, he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? It might be a familiar verse for some of us, but just again to stop and think about that God himself 
If you know Jesus, he has made you his temple, that God himself dwells in you, that he is always as near to you as possible, living within us. And not just individually. I mean, I think sometimes we get hung up there and we, we focus on this, this individual nature of it. But Paul, he continues to build this metaphor that we together, that there's a unique way in which we as his people gather together, that we are his collective temple. I love what it says, what he says in Ephesians. He says that we as followers of Jesus, we are members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, that Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, and so all these kind of description of this, this building, right, this metaphorical building, being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And he says, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. If you want to experience God's presence, gather with his people. I mean, sure, it's going to be messy. We're all still broken, self-absorbed, angry, bitter sometimes, fallen, fallen people. Of course it's going to be messy. And yet there is no more tangible expression of the nearness of God than the love of his people. Look around you. I mean, you, you might be at that point in your life where you, where you don't feel God's, God's presence, or maybe you've, you've never felt his presence. But it's here in the people sitting around you. In them, because they're a temple, and in us, because we're a temple. So if you want more of God, well, show up here. But don't just show up. Build relationships Find a small group or a place to serve. If you've never experienced God's presence, then you've never experienced Christian community of what can be. It's messy. But God will do anything to be near us. And one of the surest ways to experience the presence of God is through the presence of his people. God, he lives here with us. I don't understand it. It's mysterious. And yet, that's what this book teaches you know, one of my favorite things to hear from somebody who's, who's new uh, to Christ's community, and I hear this, this often, and I hope this doesn't sound at all like bragging. I know it's not everybody's experience, but I hear it often enough where, where people will say, you know, kind of their, their early impressions of, of being here. Is this something just different? And they can't quite put their finger on it. I'm not sure I could put my finger on it, but something about the, the community or the authenticity or the, the, rela- the, the love that people seem to experience, and that, and it's, that's God's presence with us. And I know there have been moments in my life, like, like all of you, in which I have not felt God's presence. And he's seemed distant and it's been hard. But moments when I, when I get to, to gather with those that I love and get to see God in them through a smile or a kind word or a, a willingness to pray or an opportunity to serve or be served and, and suddenly there's God's presence again somehow there in those moments. One of my favorite lines from, from Les Mis, uh, Jean Valjean sings it. I know I use this often. I, you, I like Les Mis, but uh, I love the line, to love another person is to see the face of God. I love, to love another person is to see the face of God. In the household of faith, you better believe it. That's, that's who God is creating in us and among us.
One more. If that's not all enough, let me just, one more. If you want to experience God's presence, you've got to hold to the promise. Um, Because I know we can be doing everything right, right? Can. You can be looking for a son, gathering with his people, praying, you know, reading your Bible, all those things. You can do everything right, and yet sometimes we still feel the drought in our soul and the distance from our God. I know we've all experienced it at times. Those moments when we, we long for his nearness and yet it just seems just a little bit out of reach. We can't see him. We can't touch him. We can't hear him. We are physical beings created for physical relationships. And we have a non-physical God. I get tired of that mystery. I get tired of the inevitable loneliness that that creates in a fallen world. But on this side of the new heavens and the new earth, that's the reality that we live in. And we're going to feel that tension. But hold to the promise. Hold to the promise. He will do anything to be near, even when we don't feel him. He is still near, loving, wooing, pursuing. And one day, I promise, our faith will be sight. Because the beginning of this book and the end of this book end remarkably similar. And we looked at the beginning, right? When God walked in the garden of the cool of the day. But these, this book ends really in a very similar place. It's, it's kind of a, a different sort of garden. It's more of a, a city, but it's still a place in which God's presence dwells. And, and everything that is wrong with the world is made right. Everything with me is, is made right. And we, we read this incredible picture. See this incredible picture at that moment when everything is set to right. Here's what it says. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne, that's Jesus, said, Behold, I am making all things new. And as the chapter continues, it kind of builds to this picture. It says, I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The place we are headed to is a place without a temple. Because everything will be the temple. God himself will be there and will dwell with us on, on, on a physical reality, a new earth, whatever that means, that he will be with us. And we won't need a temple because he'll be that real, that palpable to us. Our God will do anything to be near us.